Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have called us to live as free people, not using our freedom to cover up evil, but living as your servants. May we strive to do this always in all that you call us to. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So I'm, a, I'm about to date myself, which, you know, often makes people say that they're on that end. And on this, this case, it's going to make maybe go have the opposite effect. But my, I started having a political understanding about the time as Bush was ending his term and Obama came in to the White House. On Facebook, it had just started up. And I remember a friend writing, I have never seen a president so poorly treated as President Obama. And I scratched my head because I had this distinct remember, memory of a bumper sticker that said, some, some village in Texas is missing their idiot. And both of these, these, I think my friend actually had a fair criticism because a lot of people weren't great in how they treated Obama, even if they disagreed. There's a, there's a way you disagree, and there's a way you don't disagree. But I also watched the, his camp treat Bush equally poorly. And this is where I date myself. I don't know if that pattern really existed, but I assume it existed. And we've just seen it each time. You know, oh, my guy's in office, he's great. And then, oh, my guy's not in office and he's terrible. And I'm going to say all kinds of bad things about him. About that same time as Obama was in the, the process of getting elected, there was a, a Christian person who was, who's well-known. He's still pretty well-known, although I think his influence has waned a little bit. And him, his, or he or his organization put out this sort of dystopian fiction. It's like, if you vote for Obama, this dystopia is going to happen. Be really, really afraid. And the point of this is to ask this question of what our interaction with society is to look like as Christians. What are we, how are we to behave in a political system? And so often we tend to let it permeate with fear and let it dry boil up in fear. But what if we let our lives become permeated with Christ? What if how we interact with every single thing was that our lives shined forth the goodness which we enjoy in Christ? This morning we continue on through 1 Peter. We're going to be reading through 1 Peter for chapters 2, chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, if you'd like to follow along. St. Peter writes to these people, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to govern the governors as, to, as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put silence the ignorance of the foolish people.
people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom to cover up evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, despite the start to this sermon, and the subject matter, it's not about, this sermon is not about who you should vote for. As my story demonstrated, almost all of you have probably been voting longer than I have been alive, and therefore you know perfectly well how to vote for, and how to form who you should vote for. But rather, I want to push the question of how we live as a people who are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. How do we live as exiles in this world, in the reality which we face? Or perhaps a different way of asking it is how do we catechize our minds so we live well in our society? We start with this kind of punch, and and especially if, if I, I, I must admit that I sometimes recoil when the person that I don't like and I kind of want to say bad things about them in my head, I'm like, oh, that person's awful. And I have to catch myself because of this verse in St. Peter's epistle, which starts, be subject to the Lord, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. But what does this look like for us? And I, I, the reason I started with those stories is because I think for Christians, we don't live in fear, and we don't use ad hominem attacks, that is, attacks on the person. We don't live in fear that this person can completely ruin our lives, because we know that ultimately our sovereign God and King is Christ. And we don't attack ad hominem Because we know that that person, even if we think that they're the most ridiculous leader that has ever been elected in the history of anything, was created in the image of God. But also that they were put there by God. But therefore, instead, we live a life that reflects Christ and what he has done for us. The reality that Christ has made us a free people, has freed us from our sin, transforms the way that we live in this world. And it should transform every aspect of our life. The section that we're now entering into in St. Peter's epistle is what's commonly looked at as probably being modeled after an old Roman household code. In other words, there'd be this code for your house, and you'd say, you know, dear wife and children and, and, and even slaves and servants, you know, this is how I expect you to behave in the world. So what St. Peter now is getting to is, hey, you are a family in Christ. This is what I expect you to look like in the world, because your life has been transformed by Christ, because you've been made into this royal, this chosen race, royal priesthood and holy nation, This has transformed you, and this is how you live in the world. So we let our lives radiate that reality. We let our lives reflect what Christ has already done for us, what Christ has already done in us. 
And I think sometimes we sort of struggle with this. And admittedly, the reality is that we live in a society where we actually have a say. You know, the, the people St. Peter is writing to had little to no say. It's, it's maybe, maybe there were a few Roman citizens that received and read this letter. But the reality is probably most of them were like slaves and lower class people who had no say whatsoever who their governor was. And he was sent, and it was like, okay, all right, now Governor Uzi, what's it here? And let's hope he's not too terrible. <clears throat> but we do have a say, and that, of course, transforms how we live, but that rule still stands the same. We live as people transformed by Christ, not in fear and not by attacking. The fear part, I think, is especially important. And one of the, the um, books that I just really have come to appreciate in the Bible is Habakkuk of all, all the books. But it's because Habakkuk is wrestling with the question of how God can use an evil nation. And he's watching, I think it's Assyria. I always kind of forget. I think it's Assyria tromping down on Israel. And it's very clear that Assyria is just going to go plow right over them. Because, you know, size does matter in war. And Habakkuk is like, well, how can you use these people? And they were genuinely evil. I don't say evil lightly. You know, they did really terrible things. And he wants to know how, God, can you use these people on your people to judge your people? And he wrestles with this question. And it comes down to God saying, basically, don't worry. They'll receive their due. They will, in fact, be judged. And, and of course, history, we know, eventually Assyria fell and Babylon rose and Babylon fell and and Greece rose, and then Greece fell, and Rome rose, and Rome fell, and so on and so forth. Evil nations receive their judgment in God's good time. But the punchline, I think, to this is that, that verse that we often read at the beginning of morning prayer. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The Lord is in his temple. The Lord is sovereign over all the nations. Therefore, we don't have to fear. We vote our conscience, and this is a good and beautiful thing, a good right that we've been given in our nation, and we let it go. We don't live in fear that something is going to happen. It's not like God woke up, we woke up the next morning, and oh, our person didn't win, and God's like, darn, I was really hoping that other guy would win, but you know, those, those Americans, they've got to get it together. No, God knows who is going to be the rulers of the nation. <clears throat> we talked about this in, in catechism the other night because there's a little line in it, and we, we, we talked about it for a while, of how God can be Lord over even those who don't recognize him. And this is kind of a hard thing to wrap our mind around, and I'm not picking on anybody, if, so please don't think that. If you do, we can talk later. <laughs> Thank you. I didn't think that was a joke, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> it's, it's really hard to wrap our minds around, right? Like, if you have a government that is totally pagan or totally atheistic or, or, or just cruel, to wrap our minds around the fact that God is still sovereign over even the people that don't acknowledge him as Lord. He's no less Lord. If I say he's Lord, he's still Lord. He's no less or more Lord based on how I react to him. God is Lord. 
The Lord is in his holy temple. Let us keep silence before him. I think a great example of this, of course, is the oppressed church. It's, again, one of those things that's a little hard to wrap our minds around. The fastest growing church in the world is not America or Europe or any of the old seatbeds of where Christianity rose and became strong in the West. The most rapidly growing churches in the world are in two places, China and Iran. Think about that for a second. An atheistic country that you can get tossed in jail for being a Christian or worse, and a Muslim country where if you proclaim Christ as Lord, it's considered blasphemy, and your fate is even worse than being cast in jail. And that is where the church is growing the most. God can use even evil governments to grow his church, to glorify his name, to encourage one another, to build up the body of Christ, to make a chosen race a royal priesthood and a holy nation. St. Peter goes on and writes what the role of government is. And it's really important and interesting to note this because for us, it gives us a, a, a really specific thing to pray for our leaders, regardless of what we think of them. The governor, he says, is sent by the, by the emperor, but ultimately by God, to punish who, those who do evil and to praise those that get, do, do good. We know, of course, this sometimes happens and sometimes it doesn't happen. But this, as a church, can be what we pray for our leaders. We pray that they would know how to punish evil, to drive evil away out of our nation, and that they would know how to praise good and desire what is good for the nation. And that's our prayer as a church. But then what if it doesn't happen? And I think this gets back to sort of the crux of what Peter's getting at. And and again, we have to kind of look at the context because for us, we can think, okay, well, that's nice, but he was all like a great apostle. But we have to remember the situation that he's writing. He's writing as Nero is rising to power. I'm not exactly sure where that lines up, but we kind of know what happens with Nero, right? I hope. Nero rises to power and is completely bonkers burns down his city, and then everybody's like, you just burned down your city. And, and he's like, no, 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 I, I didn't. It was, uh, it was the Christians. Yeah, it was the Christians, so let's, let's kill them all. And so then he, he does that. It's, it's, it's one of the earliest and most cataloged, really severe persecutions of the church. And it's most likely that Peter died in that persecution. This is the backdrop in which Peter is writing. And so when he says to be subjected to the Lord for the Lord's sake to every human institution, he means it. This doesn't mean that if somebody rises to power and they're like, now you've got to worship me as king, that we, or as God, sorry, that we do that, right? Like, we know that. We still worship the one living and true God. And that's, of course, what's happening now with the Caesar. The Caesar is rising to power and this is what we talked about last week, that one of the charges against the early church was that, like a rebellion, basically, against the government because the, the Caesar had decided that he is a king or a god. 
keep, I don't know why I keep confusing God and king, sorry. He had decided that he is a god. And he basically wanted people to worship them. And of course, if you're worshiping Christ, and if Christ is your true king, you cannot worship anything else. Let's be really clear about that. Don't worship anything else. And so there obviously are limitations to this. But the reality is, is that the Caesars, including Nero, was under the sovereign hand of God. And he received the judgment that came from the way he ruled. But we also see that same pattern play out in the early church that we see playing out in China and Iran and other areas where it's hard to be a Christian. It grew. They tried to stomp it out, and the harder they stomped, the more rapidly it grew. And so God used those kingdoms. I have a a couple of friends, a family that's friends, I guess is the best way to say that. And the father is my my closest friend, and he became a Christian later in life. So his family kind of has mixed memories of him coming Christian in his his 40s as opposed to younger in his life, and and who he was and who he is now. And, And his children are friends as well. And I it's funny talking to his daughter who is not a Christian and she kind of falls into all of those sort of uh, things that you say about, you know, you pick up something watching TV or your friend makes a passing comment. She kind of thinks that about Christians, right? That they're, you know, don't be offended. They're stupid and they're bigots and so on and so forth. I don't think any of you are stupid or bigots. But, but if you watch enough TV, you've, you've seen that. Or if you listen to enough radio that isn't Christian, you know that that's what the world often portrays Christians as, or social media is another great place. It's, you know, I can think of dozens of examples of where I've seen that. And we, we, the daughter and I talk from time to time, and she kind of lamented not knowing many good men except for myself and her father and her brother, who are all Christians, and I was just like, okay, do you see a correlation here? And I don't pretend to be particularly good, but, but, but I, I have heard stories about dating as non-Christians, and it sounds horrible. I do not wish that upon anybody. But this is what St. Peter gets to at the next punchline here. This is what he gets to when he says, <clears throat> For this is that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance and the foolish. I don't think any of us in this room, I don't know some of you, but I assume most of us or or none of us will ever have like a major talk radio where we can say amazing things and ooh and ah people. I have zero desire to to really reach anybody outside of this room. And I I assume that probably most of us are the same way. But your non-Christian friends have probably heard all those things that my non-Christian friends have heard. They probably think the same way about their, their Christian friends. Except that then they see our lives, if we're living in Christ, if we're doing good as St. Peter tells us to. And it's a little baffling. And this is why that commandment to do good is so important. And what he is talking about isn't, isn't 
good works, like we think of, like that, that verse that I love, let your light so shine before all men, that they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. He's talking about a different thing. Good works are kind of those beautiful things that you do to glorify God in your life. Here he's just talking about doing good in our community, doing good to our neighbors, loving our neighbors as Christ has loved us. And I think that this is kind of that big question for us as a church. How do we love and care for our community? How do we be a blessing for our community? How do we care for them deeply? This is what we as exiles are called to do. We as those who have been called to be that chosen race, that royal priesthood, that holy nation, are called to pray for our neighbors. Pray that we would have wisdom and to live to the glory of Christ. As I was doing the last minute getting ready for, for this morning and showering and getting dressed and all that, I remembered this, this little clip of a sermon by a well-known Baptist pastor. And it's, it's one of those clips that like people slightly older than me like all really remember when it came out, and then I, it was shared with me, and it's actually really beautiful. And in this clip, the, the pastor talks about, he's, he's actually trying to, to get people my age to get engaged and excited about serving Christ. But he talks about retirees, and this is why I'm sharing it, because... <laughs> I love you all so much, so I hope I'm not being unkind. But he's talking, he talks about two, two sets of retirees. There's these two little old ladies that go overseas to be missionaries in Southeast Asia. I can't remember where. I think it's like Burma or something. And they're martyred for their faith. And, and what got him going is people were like, well, what a waste. And he's like, but then I read in Reader's Digest about so-and-so and so-and-so who are spending their retirement collecting seashells. And this is what makes this sermon like famous and, and really kind of hilarious, but... He's like, what a waste! And he just goes on, and he's very animated, much much more so than I am. But the the punchline of it is it is kind of a waste. These old couple, these older two ladies go and proclaim Christ, and these other couples just kind of go and live their lives for themselves. And the reason I'm sharing this story is because a lot of you are retired, and it's beautiful and wonderful. And there is things to be enjoyed, but you also have time. And most of you have lots of energy. Don't waste that time and energy doing silly things. What can you do for the kingdom of God that you have time and energy and resources? I bet you, if you pray about it, the Lord will show you some amazing ways that you can be a blessing. And if you don't have energy, and I know some of us don't have a lot of energy, I had this beautiful lady who's now gone to her eternal rest at another church that I was at. And she spent the last of her days sitting in her window, watching birds and praying. What a beautiful end to watch birds and pray. So you don't have energy, you still have the time to pray and pray and pray. All right, I've gone on a long time, and I'm sorry, so I'll, I'll try and wrap up really quick. Um, 
We are, we are therefore called to live as free people. Our liberation in Christ is like we just mentioned. It is for divine service. Not to grow and stay in sin as St. Peter's, but to grow in holiness by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Our call is to let the Holy Spirit work in our lives and draw us apart for service to Christ. St. Peter ends with sort of a little list that we honor everyone. That is, treat everyone as the image of God, whether it be someone you like or dislike. That we love the brotherhood. So we love the people sitting next to us and in front of us and behind us. We fear God. If you fear God, if you live in true and total reverence, seeing the beauty and goodness of his sovereignty, there's nothing else in this world to fear. And honor the emperor. That is, honor those who have authority. My dear friends, thank you for listening. Thank you for laughing at my weird, awkward jokes. <laughs> Christ has transformed you. Christ has transformed you and I that we would be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I invite you to spend this week praying to ask how this changes your interactions with your nation, your state, your city, and your neighbors. Is God calling you to something great? beautiful, and holy. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.